Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Recap episode 4, episodes 51 to 76. Here we are at the fourth of the recap series, covering from episodes 51 to episode 76. We started off by looking at the rise of the communes. These were the independent city-states which developed all over the peninsula, but particularly in northern Italy. We traced their development all the way back to the vacuum of power that occurred as the Western Roman Empire fell, but we also set the start dates of the first communes from a formal political level with the election of their first consuls. These were men who were chosen among the chives, the important citizens of the cities. The first records of these elected representatives date back to the 1080s, with Pisa having the first. This, as is often the case in history, is just a convention to try and trace the official start of a phenomenon that developed over centuries in many different ways and in many different areas. This period in particular coincided with the height of the investiture controversy, in which the emperor, the main feudal lord of northern Italy, the kingdom of Italy, was busy fighting it out with another feudal lord, the pope, with the main contenders often looking the other way, and at times looking for city support to help them in the fight by giving concessions, the communes, which weren't quite yet called that but would be by the 1120s, managed to flourish. If you don't remember, the investiture controversy was the fight over who had the right to nominate bishops and to assign the wealth and lands that came with the title. The other big player in the investiture controversy was Matilda, Countess of Canossa and Margravine of Tuscany. Once again, history is not made up of lines drawn in the sands of time that really limit one period from another, but the death of the Countess in 1115 could be taken as a good enough starting point for many communes in her lands. She had died with no heirs, and from then on the area would be officially ruled over by the Germanic overlords who, however, remained far away and did not reside in the area as Matilda had. This left the cities even more freedom. All of this attempt at pinpointing the birth of the communes has to blatantly ignore that many cities had started on their way to independence long before the period in question. Venice, for example, first independently elected a local doge all the way back in 726. More official recognition came from Emperor Lothar II in 840, back in the Carolingian period, and the recognition by the Byzantine Empire came in 993. Having mentioned Venice, we might also want to mention the other cities that came to be known as the Maritime Republics, i.e. Venice, Amalfi, Genoa, Pisa, Ancona, Gaeta, Noli and Ragusa. These cities did rather well due to their position along the coast. 
The Goths, the Lombards, the Franks and even the Normans all came down the inland part of the peninsula, staying more or less away from the coastal settlements. Not that they ignored them or weren't interested, but they knew that if you want to not only capture but also hold a port city, you need a significant navy, and none of the invaders mentioned had one. Amalfi, like Venice, was one of the earliest to gain independence in 836. Unfortunately, like Gaeta, the proximity to the Normans meant that their fortunes would not last as long as those of the others. Genoa, Venice and Nali would make it all the way to the end of the 18th century with the arrival of the Napoleonic armies and Ragusa made it all the way to 1808. However, Venice was the heavyweight of the group and I might have gone a bit overboard with the six whole episodes on the history of Venice. One listener summed it up very well when she said, It was sort of, one dodger came along and did stuff and then died, and then another dodger came along and did stuff and died. Which I think is a really good summary. In any case, we followed the rise of a series of communities in the lagoon of Venice, which gradually increased due to barbarian invasions and slowly moved towards first the unity of all Venice and then ended up becoming a formidable maritime republic with very few rivals on international seas. We followed Venice all the way to the conquest of Constantinople along with the crusaders of the Fourth Crusade. Going back to the main narrative, we started off from the Concordat of Worms in 1122, which sort of put an end to the investiture crisis, but didn't really achieve much at all. Neither the Pope nor the Emperor lived much longer after that. Pope Calixtus died in 1124, and Henry V the year after in 1125. From the ensuing crisis, the whole Guelphs and Ghibellines business started up, with the Guelphs being the German nobles in favour of an electoral system of emperorship and the Ghibellines in favour of a hereditary system. But in time, these labels in Italy would come to define the pro-papal forces, the Guelphs, and the pro-imperial ones, the Ghibellines. Out of the imperial succession mess, in time, Frederick I would rise, known as Frederick Barbarossa, Redbeard. Before we traced his rise, we took a look down at southern Italy at what the Normans were doing. After the Norman Hauteville family had conquered all of southern Italy in the 11th century, they had taken Sicily from the Muslims, and in the 12th century, they were looking to transform their duchy into a kingdom which they finally managed to do when Roger II was crowned on Christmas Day in 1130. Meanwhile, the independent commune fever even reached Rome, where a republic was set up in the 1140s, thanks also to the influence of a spiritual and moral leader such as Arnaldo da Brescia, who ended up being executed thanks to the intervention of Barbarossa upon request by Pope Hadrian IV, the only English Pope ever to sit on the throne of St. Peter, to this day. This, however, did not put an end to the ideas of communal independence in the Eternal City. The latter part of the 12th century 
was marked by the continuously rising tensions between the communes of northern Italy and Holy Roman Emperor Barbarossa, who wished to bring all of the Italian peninsula under his rule, but had to deal with continuing rebellions from the cities. The more he tried to impose his will, such as the Diet of Roncaglia in 1158, the more the communes resisted, many of them swapping sides for and against the emperor. After a series of sieges, including the total destruction of Crema and Milan, things took a new turn in 1167, when a series of cities, Milan in the lead, formed the Lombard League, which was immediately outlawed by the emperor, who, however, could not actually do anything for some time. One of the first things that the League did was to found the city of Alessandria, so-called in honour of Alexander III, who had joined the League. It was placed in a strategic anti-imperial position. Barbarossa tried to lay siege without success. The culmination of the struggle came in May of 1176, when a part of the forces of the League met with a part of Frederick's forces as he tried to join the rest of his army and defeated him at the Battle of Legnano, an important victory that is remembered to this day and whose memory has been used in the foundation of the modern-day League party. The Battle of Legnano did not mark the end of Barbarossa, but it did mark the end of his dreams of consolidating a united empire. His death came as he was heading for the Third Crusade, but not in battle. He died while crossing a river in 1190. One trick he had managed to pull off was to bring the Norman kingdom of Sicily and southern Italy under his influence by marrying his son Henry VI to the heir of the Norman kingdom, Constance, the aunt of King William II. With the death of Frederick and that of William II, Henry VI could potentially rule from Germany down to Sicily, but he needed to control things on the ground. It was in attempting to do this that he died at a young age, not in battle, but of disease. When his widow Constance died the following year, they left their infant son Frederick as an orphan and in the care of the Pope. The Pope hoped that as little Frederick grew up, he would stay under the influence of the papacy and would not attempt to unite the crowns of the Kingdom of Sicily and the Holy Roman Empire. But he was wrong on both counts. At the age of 14, Frederick already started to act independently, and in time he would make the papacy's worst fears come true by uniting the Kingdom of Sicily and the rest of the empire he had inherited from his father. The clash heightened and led to Frederick getting excommunicated, officially due to his hesitation in upholding his crusading vows. His successful diplomatic victory, which won Jerusalem back from the Sultan Malek al-Kamil, in no way improved relations with the Pope, who wanted blood. In the end, a runaway Pope Innocent IV actually deposed Frederick in the First Council of Lyon in 1145, and the Emperor spent the last years of his life dealing with rebellions and betrayals, put down with growing ferocity and cruelty, before dying in the year 1250. Frederick, 
a highly educated, open and friendly man who really knew how to party, was a successful general and a careful lawmaker who founded the secular university of Naples, which still bears his name. He was known as the wonder of the world to his admirers, but as a blasphemous fiend to his opposers. We wrapped up this stretch of the podcast by looking at a more or less contemporary figure of Frederick, Francis of Assisi, and how he went through a personal spiritual crisis, gave up all his worldly possessions, and abandoned his family to found the Franciscan order and lead a simple life of poverty according to the teachings of the gospel. He would become already in his life one of the most influential figures in church history and world famous to this day. Now, as you expert listeners of history will know, dividing along dates and eras and periods is always rather arbitrary. Just like it didn't happen one day that everyone in the Western world at the time woke up with a big red circle on their calendar which said fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476. So also did they not wake up one day and said, well, well, today is the end of the Middle Ages. Also because the debate on this still rages. However, we can say that the death of Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II marked a clear point in which the dreams of the emperors of reuniting the ancient Roman Empire were definitively over. What's more, during the century we have just been talking about, the 13th, seeds were sown for a new cultural mood in Italy. The foundation of the secular University of Naples, the more widespread use of forms of Italian, such as at the court of Frederick or by Francis of Assisi. This movement would bloom in the 14th and 15th centuries and would later be called Rinascenza by artist and historian Giorgio Vasari in the 16th century. This word would then become Rinascimento in Italian and Renaissance in English, albeit borrowed from the French. Now, when it came to the Renaissance, well, that was one thing that the Italians would take pretty seriously. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Andrew, Anthony, Selene, Chris, Daniel, Dean, Greg, Ignazio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Marxist, Leninist Sicilian, and Reactionary Volition, one from the south and one from the north there, Roberta, Rodney, Shelby, Stephen and Vincent, and the tippy-top Maria Montessore, and Dante Alighieri level, Sen, Paolo, and Lisa Kay, whom I had the great pleasure of meeting recently when she came to our little city of Reggio Emilia. Looking forward to seeing you again. Remember, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, you can click through to our social media, we are on Twitter and Facebook, and if you're feeling really, really generous, you too can become a Patreon supporter and have access to extra content or make a PayPal donation. It would be much appreciated. Thanks in any case to everyone for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Arrivederci.
Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.